sometimes the case. Today's gospel is actually almost a divided gospel, uh, two different messages in, in this one little thing and uh, this one little passage in the church fathers who put the lectionary together uh, allowed it to do so. But first, before I get to those two themes, I want to point out how different our culture is than the time of uh, certainly Elisha and I'm, I'm sure uh, the times of Jesus. Elisha is greeted and uh, well taken care of by this woman and her, her husband and uh, fed and then given, given a room or a space uh, with, you know, if you think about it, if you, get, if you have your food, you have a bed, you have a chair, you have a table and you have a lamp, you have everything you need. And so he asks, what can I do for her while she's without a child? Ah, so he prays for her to have a child as a blessing. Now we live in a day and age where children are sometimes not seen as blessings. In fact, a number of years ago, not too long ago, I heard somebody, <clears throat> this woman had said something, uh, it was kind of funny, but right on the edge of being insulting, and uh, this person responded to her, I hope you end up pregnant, as if that were a curse. We live in that day and age where children, babies, infants are seen as a curse, but not in the days of Elisha. But here we have living, a living example of someone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet. Somebody who receives then, therefore, we can assume a prophet's reward. Not that the reward of a prophet is more children, but uh, the blessings of God. Today in this gospel passage, this, this is what Jesus promises, that if we do the right thing, if we uh, receive the prophet or receive the righteous man, or give a cup of cold water to one of the disciples, we receive a reward. We shouldn't do it, by the way, for that reward, but we receive the reward that God will make all things right, that God will make all things uh, come out in the end. But that first half of the gospel is perhaps a hard one for us to, to, uh, to listen to, perhaps a hard one for us to understand. After all, like I said last week, aren't we told to love everyone and, and to be nice with everyone and, and play, play nice with everyone? And yet, here, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son and daughter or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Does this mean that we're called to hate? No, and not at all. In fact, elsewhere in the, in the, in the Gospels, we do hear that of uh, unless you hate your father and mother, brothers, sisters, uh, children, lands, you cannot be my disciple. But that word hate is not what we understand it to be, much like uh, the blessings of children is very different. Uh, the, the word hate doesn't, isn't the opposite of love. It isn't, doesn't mean to despise, but rather the, uh, the, the biblical concept of hate is to put second, to allow something more important to be first. And what's more important than father, mother, sons, daughters, children, lands, houses, all those things? God. In fact, how can we really love anyone if we don't love God first? How can we really love anyone if we don't accept the love that God has for us? As St. John tells us, we love because God first loved us. Elsewhere, we read in St. John's 2, how can we love the God we do not see if we do not love our neighbor, if we do not love our brother? It's a both and, but 
We need to love God first, more. Why? Because God is a source of love. God reminds us and gives us this love. And just like the blessing of children, the, the understanding of hate, this understanding of love is very different too. I don't know about you, but I almost want to throw up a little bit in my mouth every time I hear love is love. Yeah, maybe, but maybe not. Maybe love is something more than what this world defines love. Love defines this, uh, love is just a, a kind of a, a, a movement of the affect. Uh, you, you get a warm, fuzzy feeling, you look at somebody and your heart skips a beat or whatever. Well, that might be, that might be a form of love, affection, or, or infatuation might be a better understanding of that. But love is rather to put somebody's needs above one's own. And when the whole <clears throat> love is love debate, so often if you scratch the surface, you begin to see it's not that self-giving love. It's not a love that's certainly not necessarily based on the love of God the Father, the love of God who would suffer and die for us. And therein is the connection to the next line. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. St. Luke, by the way, adds a particular adverb there, daily. Whoever does not take up his cross daily. See, St. Luke is trying to remind us it's not enough just to say, well, I took up that cross once, you know, a few years ago. Um, I set it down. I'm not carrying it right now, but I took it up. No, it's daily, every day, to take it up. And so often when we look at the cross, we see, of course, and we remind ourselves as Catholics what the cross looks like. We have... Uh, as I'm sitting uh, uh, and listening to the readings and participating in the psalm response, I'm looking at the stations of the cross and how beautiful they are, but how haunting they are too. These are not pleasant images to look at if we really understood what they represented. To look at the crucifix uh, in the stained glass window that we have in front of us this morning, this is not a pleasant image. And yet, through the years, we've kind of accepted it. We've sanitized it. We've removed it from the original context. And sometimes it, I consider that a great loss, but perhaps there's something more. We have to remember that the cross was an instrument of torture. It's the most extreme way to die. The, the Romans uh, borrowed it from the Greeks, who borrowed it from the Babylonians, who borrowed it from, from uh, someone else, I forget which, uh, which uh, um, little tribe it was that they, they think had started it. Uh, but it was the extreme capital punishment, the worst saved for the worst. And our Lord took the cross and he transformed it. Yes, it's a place of torture, but it's also a place where God's glory was revealed where God's glory was made manifest for us, that Jesus took the cross, transformed that instrument of death in, into the instrument of eternal life, giving us life. And so when we are invited by our Lord to take up our cross, yes, it might be a place of torture and pain, but it's also an instrument of salvation for us. This last week I read a little uh, article about our, uh, I think it was Ukrainian Catholics, a custom that they have is certainly Eastern Catholic, 
a custom that they have as a couple is being married. They are given a crucifix to hold between them. And they are reminded that the other is their cross. Now, if we have it in the ears of, uh, or in our ears, that the cross is a place of torture, we might understand that. But if we understand, too, the cross is a place of salvation, we might wonder at the power of that statement of just simply holding a cross and reminded that each other is the cross. We're invited to take up the cross daily, hourly, every second. To take up our cross, and as we just said, to not put it down. To take up our cross. After all, we hear, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. Now, I'll deny I ever shared this story if it ever comes back to me, but a number of years ago, I happened to be home when I was in seminary. It happened to be the baccalaureate recognition Sunday at the parish where my mom and sisters belonged. My sister was a senior that year, but she did not take part in the, uh, the service, the Mass. And I asked my mom, well, where is she? Oh, she said she had to go find herself, so she went camping. I said, oh, really? My mom responded, yeah, maybe she should find herself in church. Now, while it was kind of humorous, I agreed wholeheartedly. We look for ourselves, we look for uh, who we are and all these things, and we take God out of the picture. Our world certainly takes God out of the picture with love, but when we ask, who are we? If God is not part of that, at least, we're never going to get a decent answer. We're always going to be searching. When we lose ourselves to God, when we say, I submit to you, God, I give myself completely to you, that's when we find ourselves. That's when we take up our cross. That's when we love God above all others. But notice that we don't cease to love others when we love God. It all falls back into place. It all falls that husbands and wives, when you love God first, you're more fully able to love your spouse. Parents, when you love your when you love God first, you're more able to love your children. Children, when you love God first, you're more able to love your brothers and sisters, your parents. We're able to love God more when we give ourselves to God. We're able to love others more when we give ourselves to God. We come this day asking the Lord to help us lose ourselves in him, asking ourselves to be found in him, and that once we are found, to love everyone, but to love him, of course, greatest of all.